Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, if you've been around Beeson Divinity School for any time at all, you will well know the name Dr. James Earl Massey. He is one of our dear friends. He's many times spoken in our school for various uh, special occasions, given courses. He also is the only person who has presented the William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching not once or twice, but three times. That's both uh, a mark of our great respect for him and also of his stature as one of the leading preachers and teachers of preaching Uh, in our country today. Well, who is Dr. Massey? He is the Dean Emeritus of the Anderson School of Theology in Anderson, Indiana. He was the founding pastor of Metropolitan Church of God in Detroit. He served as a missionary educator in Jamaica. Uh, For many years, he was the speaker on the International Christian Brotherhood Hour. Uh, He has been the Dean of the Anderson School of Theology and the Dean of the Chapel at Tuskegee University. For over 50 years, Dr. James Earl Massey has been an extraordinary preacher, teacher, and communicator of the gospel. Now today on the Beeson Podcast, we're going to dip into one of those three Conger lectures Dr. Massey presented right here in Hodges Chapel at Beeson Divinity School. This one is rather special because we had invited Dr. John Stott to come and give these lectures. Dr. Stott had been with us in the past. We were so looking forward to his coming again. But shortly before the time for these lectures uh, came, about a week, I think, before, Dr. Stott suffered a stroke and was not able to be with us. So we turned almost intuitively to Dr. Massey. And he came fully prepared with, as he said, fresh material the Lord had given him, unbeknownst to him of any of these activities, and presented these lectures. And so you'll, you'll hear him refer to Dr. Stott in the beginning of the lectures. Uh, the theme of the whole lectureship was Stewards of the Story. And it's based on this text in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. It is required of stewards that one be found faithful. I think you'll really enjoy listening to Dr. Massey as he explores the theme of the stewardship of the story. This is the first of two lectures we're going to hear from this series. This one deals with the pastor, the preacher, and ritual. Listen to what Dr. Massey says about ritual, how he develops this idea. It'll give you some fresh perspective on it. And then uh, our next lecture in this series on the podcast will be the steward and reality. Let's listen now to Dr. James Earl Massey from the year 2004, presenting the William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching right here at Beeson on the theme, Stewards of the Story. I had planned to be present on the occasion of the Conger Lectures, to sit at the feet of Dr. John Stott and hear him speak to us. As it turned out, because of his illness, instead of sitting, I am standing. Instead of listening, I am speaking. 
I want to thank you for the kind, attentive hearing, especially those of you who were disappointed that Dr. Stott was not present. But I rejoice with you this morning in the news that he gave in calling the office this morning and sharing his concern for us, even as we had been sharing our concern for him. Isn't God good? I also want to call attention to a book that Dr. Stott wrote many years ago based upon the patent lectures that he gave at Fuller Theological Seminary. And in one chapter of that book, he treats the theme that I have been treating and will continue to treat throughout tomorrow. The book is entitled, The Preacher's Portrait. And one of those chapters deals with the preacher as a steward. Of course, my understanding of that was based upon my own study of the New Testament, but Dr. Stott has included a portion of that in his book, and I call that to your attention, having remembered it this morning, and I thought you might like to hear his take, since he could not be here, at least you can hear by way of his book on what he might have said if that had been his theme. We do not know what theme he would have chosen for the occasion, but at least you can know what he has to say about the preacher's life and work by reading that particular book, plus Dr. Stott's work, Between Two Worlds. Today, we take a look at the steward and ritual. Our work as preachers involves us in what across the centuries have become some ritualistic procedures. We who preach need to understand the meaning of those rituals, the importance of those rituals, and the effects of those rituals if we are to handle our ministries with wisdom. First, there is that ritualistic element called ordination. Those of us who preach do so as ordained persons, persons endorsed by some church body. And we stand linked with certain responsibilities and we have certain rights which mark us as ritual figures so that wherever we go our presence and our work will carry considerable sign value. It might seem commonplace to speak about the sign value of the preacher, but all of us know that whenever someone is referred to in the group as reverend, all eyes move to take in the person being so addressed. Because there are associations we make because of the term or the title being used. And that sign value is heightened by the style of the preacher, the gifts of the preacher, the education of the preacher, the community involvement of the preacher. Out in public circles, feelings of respect are stirred whenever the preacher comes around. 
I remember going into the barber shop on one occasion in those years when I still had hair. And they had been talking about something that at least the barber did not feel should be continued now that the preacher had walked through the door. So I heard, I heard the statement, cool it, cool it, the reverend is here. Why did they do that? Sign value. The clerical collar is ritualistic. And it has profound effects, particularly upon those, the consciousness of those who in their own religious expressions are associated with the person wearing the collar. The proverbial dark suit, white shirt, and subdued color necktie <laughs> also has significant sign value, especially for those where the preacher still expected to honor some distinct style of appearance when in public. I am not arguing for a specific style of dress. I'm talking now about expectations and associations historically which have passed down to our time. Writing with reference to British life and customs, Englishman Richard or Russell Brain commented, as I now report, when it is desirable that we should think of and feel towards particular individuals or classes of individuals in a special way, society tends to give them distinctive clothes or uniforms. The effects of a uniform are both subtle and profound. The judge, wearing a bizarre headdress and a kind of overcoat dating from the remote past, wears a strange costume. But it is different from the clothes anyone else wears because it symbolizes his exceptional social function and powers. The judge in court is something different in fact and feeling from the same person encountered on a social occasion. The same is true of the priest, the policeman, and the mailman, each in his different way. Society does associate certain meanings with certain functions, and those functions are usually indicated by the dress of the person who is authorized to function in that way. Miles Mark Fisher, one of the great black church historians, documented the way black slave preachers dressed in relation to their sacred ministries to their parishioners. Some of them dressed in full dress style with the Prince Albert coat but this was not out of a vain concern for finery in clothing. It was their belief, says Miles Mark Fisher, that the spiritual leader should look different from the usual workday appearance. The better clothes marked out the preacher's difference as a changed figure and as a God-called spokesperson. You see, this different and distinctive dress was a declaration of devotion. It established a mood when one saw it, and it pointed to a higher order than the routine.
The preacher's clothes thus reflected religious feeling on the one hand and a religious responsibility on the other. I know we're at a time when there is a tendency to dress down without calling particular attention to any one person's role when we gather. I understand that, but I'm still speaking historically about what has influenced perceptions across the centuries because of the work in which preachers have been involved. Much is being debated and debunked in our time, and we need to understand history in order to understand the importance of that which needs to be continued or what will be lost if it is not continued. But this whole business of the regard black slaves exhibited toward representative dress in religious life is far wider and much earlier than the history of American slavery. The biblical culture reflects it in the attire that the priest wore. Psalm 29.2 holds a line that should be understood as an encouragement for special dress on the part of leaders during worship. In the call to worship given there, the worshipers are invited to dress in festive array. That is to say, to wear vestments which match the purpose of the gathering. We're face to face here with a ritual and with the sign value of a particular way of dressing. The robing of a choir to sing. The robing of the minister to lead worship and preach have to do with ritual and with sign value. Second, in addition to the sign value of the preacher's role as an authorized or ordained spokesperson, there is the ritual element of using a special book from which one reads before preaching. And the contents of that book form the basis for what is to be said when preaching. That book, the Holy Bible. During my years of service in Jamaica, when my wife and I were living there back in the early 60s, I had the privilege one afternoon of being the speaker at a Presbyterian church where a college was having a special service. And I noticed as the procession was about to begin, we were to move into the sanctuary, but at the head of the line, there was the ruling elder holding a large Bible in his arms. And as the procession began, he was in the front. When he got to the place where the, what we would call the communion table rests, he placed the Bible there on the table while we waited there and he opened the Bible and then he moved off and the procession continued. We went to our places. I especially valued that because it said to me, without anyone interpreting it for me, it said to me, we are ready to begin the serious service only when the word of God is exposed to us. Ritual. 
What a marvelous thing it would be if our members understood what an open Bible represents. You will also notice, if you were mindful on yesterday, that the pulpit, which was here, had on it four figures, Chrysostom, Huss, Knox, and Whitfield. And each one was holding a Bible. It is a symbol to each of us that what happens in the pulpit must always have to do with God's Word. Third, along with the ritualistic sign value of the preacher's presence and mode of address, mode of dressing, that is, along with the special use of a special book in which the Word of God stands inscripturated, there is the ritualistic import of the sanctuary space and the architecture there. Look around just for a moment. All of these are aids to worship, calling our attention to meanings, happenings, personages whom God used in their time. This is more than decoration. It has a ritual effect. Paul Quinn has explained that a building becomes architecture only when it becomes ritual. Some years ago, after planting a congregation in Detroit, watching it grow, watching the Lord at work making it grow, I began to feel more of the burden of leadership. I always felt it, but there are times when, as you know, you feel the burden more acutely than other times. And that particular day, I was part of a, an assemblage of ministers at our regular Detroit Pastors' Union meeting, and it was held at a Russian Orthodox church located there in Detroit. And while the meeting was going on, I was mindful of the sanctuary setting in which we were meeting. I noticed the icons on the walls and on the ceiling. After the meeting was over, I stayed behind to talk with Pastor Lilikovich about the icons. I wanted more information about the artistry that I saw. He explained to me that the artwork, such as this that you now see around you, was the work of a Romanian artist, such as this was. That artist had come over after the Second World War, and it had taken him seven years to do the work of placing the icons in that church sanctuary. After he finished talking to me about it all, I sat down in the pew, alone, and as I sat there, 
history became alive to me and the pictures that I saw, the icons, began to speak to me with the message I needed at that particular time in my ministry. I'm saying all of that because ritual can be so meaningful and it can speak to us when we understand what it's there to do. Now confining our thought for just a moment to the pulpit area of the sanctuary. All of us know that it is a special place. All of us know that people tend to respect that place and most families would not allow their children to play on the pulpit. And all of us know that ascending the pulpit stairs is not the same as just walking up some steps. The pulpit space is a particularized territory of action. It's raised not only to make it readily visible to all, particularly those who are in the rear, but it is raised also to suggest higher meanings associated with what happens in that space. There's such rich symbolism associated with the pulpit and it's far too complex for broad treatment at, the, at this time, but it's just necessary to report and remember that what we do in this sacred space as preachers must relate directly and without distortion to our authorization to be there and it must relate definitely and without distortion to our responsibility that is to be handled while there. Woe be unto any one of us to ascend the pulpit stairs with our word rather than with the Lord's word. Rightly understood, you and I are authorized agents, stewards, part of a special process of happenings for people. And by our work, there can be a deepening of the relationship between the hearers and God, as well as a deepening relationship between the speaker and the hearers. That can be a reinforcement of the beliefs they have, a changing of mistaken notions that they have by way of our preaching, a sharing of understandings that belong to both of us, the granting of explicit guidance to those who are seeking it, the mutual reception of divine grace whenever we meet, and cooperativeness in ministry as we move out from the sanctuary. The pulpit is a special place. Still talking about the pulpit. We are generally expected to give a word from the Lord. Paul Preuser, in his lecturing to the ministers and the students at Yale Divinity School as he was giving the Beecher lectures there back in 1967 or earlier, he said, the spoken word from the preacher is one of the numinous noises of worship. Notice the adjective. 
It's not just noise, not just words. There is a quality of feeling that goes with what is heard. That's why he refers to the noises of worship as numinous. They carry with them a, a special weightedness. We make our numinous noise to open meanings to people. We authorize to voice a distinctive sound, namely the story by which God addresses people, engaging their hearts, centering their hopes, and directing their living along with ours. There is more to this than ritual, but there are certain ritualistic elements associated with it. And the power of preaching is best served when our preaching in this place, this special sacred space, when our preaching is an all-out action, which is to say it includes feeling, gestures, and a full openness of being. This means that what the watching listener sees will register an impact along with what the listener hears. As for what the listener sees, there's the visual perception of our gestures, our movement, our body language, we might say. Along with what the listener hears, our words, our inflections, the rhetorical artistry that is ours, which makes up our personal style of speaking. And this combination of impacts, oral and visual, has been referred to as the duality of communication. Phillips Brooks, in his Beecher Lectures, back in 1876, referred to this combination of impacts as preaching that brings truth through personality. Do not leave personhood out of preaching. You can't do it. If God issues the call to the person, then the person is as much as involved as is the message. Now keep that in mind because I'm going to underscore it in just a few minutes in a little different way. The person is just as important as the message. This verbal manifestation conveys meaning on the one hand, and presence on the other, large P, because we as stewards do not represent ourselves as we stand here. We represent another, large A. Those who hear our words are candidates for some immediate effects and some lasting effects because the moment of hearing is a special time in the midst of running time. Kairos, the particularized moment in the midst of Kronos, time as it runs along. This is what every Sunday morning ought to be, a Kairos moment. Not routine, redemptive. Not ordinary, extraordinary. Not muddling, meaning. 
Not strange, but strong, stirring, settling, saving, sustaining. This is what preaching is about. Kairos. It doesn't happen apart from God speaking. It does not happen from mere oratory. Preaching that is true to its purpose promotes and assists what Douglas Horton in his Beecher Lectures in 1957, what he described as the divine incursion. God is seeking to move into our lives in the midst of the worship setting. He's seeking to move into our lives in other settings too. But it's in that moment when we gather that the expectation should be there. And all of what we do should feed that expectation so that no one is disappointed. We limp in, yes, but because of God we leap out. The divine incursion. So worship becomes a time, the kairos time, when contacts are made that give meaning to our existence. Sometimes we discover the meaning as the preaching goes on. I don't mean the preacher discovers it. I mean the preacher shares it and the people discover it. We discovered it earlier in the study or in our daily walk when the Lord riveted some meaning to our attention in the midst of our experience. So now let me go to what I asked you to put a hold on for a moment when I said the preacher, the person of the preacher is as important as the message that the preacher gives. Because unless the preacher maintains a disciplined commitment that makes the person to be at one with the message, the message is diluted and distorted and its impact blunted. I once had a long conversation with a Roman Catholic priest at the University of Detroit. I had heard the priest say, that no matter what the lifestyle of the priest, it had no effect upon the efficacy of his action in administering the Eucharist. I went to the priest and had quite a discussion about this afterward and told him from our perspective as Protestants, we believe that the hands that bear God's message must be clean and that our life must match the word that is spoken and that if it did not, we lost the right to speak. I don't know what it is in your tradition, but that's in mine. We lose the right to speak for God if we do not match what God is calling people to do through us. 
There is no substitute for a disciplined commitment as a preacher. Jesus referred to this as living with a single eye. If you want the chapter and verse, Matthew 6, 22 and Luke eleven thirty four. It is this commitment that grants the preaching person a persuasive intensity that gives depth and dimension to what is spoken. Because if someone in the hearing audience knows that the preacher does not live the way the preacher speaks, it blunts the edge that the word spoken ought to have in the hearer's consciousness. This whole matter has to do with keeping our selfhood surrendered to spirituality and keeping our role related to the divine realities. Only so will our preaching be more than ritual. Because it is possible, it is possible to do something that's right, but to do it with the wrong motive. Let me illustrate. J.L. Austin, writing about hypocrisy in another connection, pictured two crooks engaged at cover jobs in order to carry out a deeper and different intention. One crook was cleaning windows, and the other crook was out cutting trees, both engaging in effective pretense while they cased the joint, intending to rob it later. The fault in this was not in what each one was doing. It was important that the trees be cut. It was important that the windows be cleaned. The problem was not in what they were doing, but what they were doing it as. The one that was cleaning windows was not a window cleaner. He was a crook. The one that was cutting trees was not a tree cutter. He was a crook. And it is possible to stand in the pulpit speaking from the Bible and be a crook. Well, if my point has not been caught yet, Franz Kafka wrote about his vision of a large city at night in which just few people were awake. And Kafka likened it to a military encampment in which everybody is asleep except a few guards who are on duty keeping watch. And in his parable he asked, why are the few still awake while all the others in the city are asleep? And he answered himself, because someone must be watching. Someone must be there watching. When I ran across that, I thought about the preacher's description over in Ezekiel of being a watchman. My brothers and my sisters, in our churches, our responsibility as stewards of the story is to be on guard, 
to be watching for our people. And as we watch, we learn what to preach. Ritual shows its value in the way it helps to preserve and pass on meanings. After I saw the new pulpit that had been prepared, I talked to Dean George about it and commended him for his insight in having the pulpit, forgive the word, decorated in that fashion. Forgive the word. Because immediately upon coming through those doors, and I saw that, immediately I understood what was being suggested. Like these intrepid figures of old who were solid interpreters of God's word, courageous spokespersons for God, those who come into this sanctuary are being given the same message. You too have this assignment. Out of the book, speak. Out of the book, live. Out of the meanings of the book, draw. By the meanings of the book, die. One of them, Huss, lost his life because of his faithfulness to the word. And I want to say this. In our day, we are not going to be popular with the masses. Not M-A-S-S-E-Y-S. We are not going to be popular in our time if we are true to God's word. For there are forces at work in our society that are undermining any interest in God's directives for human life. Look at the current debate. Highly politicized now. It's more than political though. It's a moral issue on whether or not Alternative styles of marriage are to be legitimated in law. I don't know how you view all of this. But the foundations are about to be destroyed. Well, who has to speak about this? In a time of toleration? Who speaks about it? What does God have to say about it? Does he want silence on our part when our people gather to hear God's word? Oh, for solid folk like Chrysostom. John Knox. John Huss. George Whitefield. It's more than ritual, my brothers and sisters. Ritual captures the past, but it does more it makes meanings concrete. It gives meanings a present tense so that those meanings can be comprehended in a certain way at strategic times, in selected places, interpreted by authorized persons. You and I. Stuarts, as a ritual that is repeated but which is expected to bear an extra degree of intensity and high effective tones, preaching can help hearers to apprehend God, have you ever heard anyone preach in such openness 
that you sensed the divine? That you knew more than that person was involved in what you were hearing? That's what I'm talking about. A degree of intensity. High affective tones. When the preacher is more than a ritualist, when he or she exudes in character and in service the contagious flavor of God himself, then those who hear the preaching can be carried beyond ritual and experience the reality to which ritual points. Both preaching people are in trouble when preaching deadens into routine. When it is experienced by preacher and listeners as tedium rather than as te deum. God is eager to bless your work and mine, but God does so only when we commit ourselves fully to the responsibilities associated with the calling. Stewards of the mysteries of God, which means we cannot be content with book reviews. Current events are dealt with in light of God's word. Nice little nothings prepare bad nothings. The prophets, when they preached, used a ritualistic formula. Think about that ever-present declaration. Neum Yahweh, thus says the Lord. Now they either spoke that as an introductory statement, as they began, Oh, they spoke it as a concluding seal to what they had just said. And it was to mark what was said as indelibly God's very own speech to the hearers. Jesus, in his coming, in his preaching, initiated a ritualistic formula that differed from the prophets. He didn't appeal to the divine name. But according to John's gospel, he said, Verily, verily, I say to you, a ritualistic formula. Evangelist Billy Graham appeals to a higher authority with a ritualistic statement. The Bible says, and his biographers tell us that this is the most common phrase found among his collected sermons. That ritualistic statement not only declares the source of his authority, but it elicits a feeling tone on the part of those who hear him because he stands upon it as his reason for saying what he says. And woe be to any one of us if what we have said does not bear the authority of the word. I recall preaching in Montreat, North Carolina, at the Presbyterian place there, and after the service was over, there were two 
women who stood in front of me and they wanted to take exception to my use of the Lord's Prayer and my treatment of our Father, that section of the Lord's Prayer. I had dealt with God's role as a pyrrhoning figure, or parenting, so you know what I'm talking about. And they didn't like it because I referred to God as Father. And I said to them, with as much love as I could muster, I am content to follow my Lord's direction in the way I look at his word. They were wanting me to say, and they said so, you should have said our Father, Mother, God. Not on your life. I say there are forces at work in our time that are seeking to undermine. And we have to be open in our understanding of how this has come about. We must be firm in our determination to deal with it realistically, lovingly, but definitely. And take whatever comes as a result of dealing in that way. Well, whether we preach with or without a ritualistic formula, Every sermon we deliver ought to report what God has to say at that time to those persons being addressed in that place. Rightly understood. Preaching is always God's speech in the present tense to those who are alive in the place where we are. Along with the ritual, but surely beyond all ritual, people listen to a sermon expecting to hear God. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.